All right, Psalm 19. Let's stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Hear God's word to you this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thus ends the reading of God's powerful, authoritative word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Mm-mm-mm. Try to make my introductory comments brief because I want to dig into the text. But what I do want to remind you of, this is a song. It was meant to be sung. And why I'm bringing that to your attention is because I don't know about you, but you ever get these songs stuck in your head? You know, you're listening to it and you find yourself singing the song. And then sometimes you don't even realize until you start saying the words out loud. Whoa, what am I saying? And you try to get that melody out of your head because you realize it's not a good thing to be meditating on. Now, when I first got saved, um... You know, I was immersed in all kinds of music with lyrics that, let's just say, were less than worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I did a radical thing. I took all my cassette tapes. This is just as kind of pre-CD, you know, type of thing, MP3. And I literally threw them all out. And I decided I was only going to listen to Christian music. And I'll tell you, for the first couple years or so when I did that, it was good for me. It was good for me to feast on the word of God and song, to get new songs in my mind, to be meditating on the gospel, on the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as the years went on, I was able to introduce secular music again into my life a little bit. But even to this day, I love like prog rock music, but I like the instrumentals better because I don't like them preaching me their secular, unbelieving, skeptical, and sometimes just foul language. So... That's why the Lord gave us 
in his inerrant word, 150 songs. Um, because it's good for us not only to know the word, to study the word, to be in the word, but literally to sing it, to have its melody in our hearts. So it becomes a part of the very fiber of our being. Now, having said that, I, I thought of this, I, I read this one statement this past week, and I've heard it many times before, but it was appropriated to, a, to the wrong person. But I think this was around the 17, 1800s. Someone once said, let me make the ballads of a country, and I don't care who makes their laws. And there's a lot of truth to that. How many of you can quote the Constitution? I'll tell you what, I could quote almost every Queen song. Word for word. What's that tell you? Now, it's, it's a bit of an overstatement because what we're going to do this morning is we have to understand whether it's a song, whether it's a historical narrative, whether it's an epistle, whether it's a gospel, it's all the inerrant word of God and it should be expounded upon and preached. And that's what I'm going to do this morning. And as we look at this psalm, this song, which by the way, I heard one there's one tune to it in English and it's not too bad I got to give them credit somebody at least tried to put music to it but um, if any of you are musicians out there and want to put a uh, tune to this psalm that would be awesome I might try it someday but we're, as we look at this psalm we'll see there's basically just three sections I want to point out and I think it was Martin Luther who said the first number of verses deal with God's big book his general revelation through what he has made the second section deals with God's little book, which is the scriptures. And then the last section is really the application that the singer, the songwriter, David, draws from those things. So what we're going to see this morning is simply this. God has revealed himself, listen, this is important, to all people through creation. To his covenant people through his inscripturated word, the Bible, Fancy way of saying that. And last of all, it reveals to us our need for a redeemer. So I want you to see that. General revelation to the whole world. Special revelation to his people. Revealing our desperate need for a redeemer. And we'll see that in the last section. So let's take a look at the first one. Jump right in. God speaks through his creation. Uh, I've known this since I've been saved, but it's been really neat to kind of pour over it here in this psalm and dig into it. So verses 1 to 4, David gives us the general principle that God speaks through the heavens in particular. But then in verses 4 to 6, he takes an example of all the heavens, but really the chief example is what? The sun. He's going to take a few verses out to say how incredible that creation of God is and how it points to the glory of the creator our creator. So first he starts with the revelation that God gives through what he has made, and that's specifically the heavens. Look at verses 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. Look at the words here. The heavens do what? They declare. Do you see that? What do the skies do? They proclaim. What other ver verbs do we have? They pour forth speech. They display knowledge. And when do they do it? They do it daily. They do it day after day, night after night. Constantly preaching. 
whether it's light out or it's dark out, they're saying glory to God. So what does that mean? That means the heavens, this is specifically what's being spoken about here, the moon, the stars, the sky, the sun in particular. And it, what, it says they pour forth speech, but then it also says they're silent. Isn't that interesting? So what does that mean? It's kind of like a silent movie where you don't hear any words, but you still get some message. And so what message can you get out of creation? Because creation is very limited, but it can reveal something about God. And lo notice what the text says. It reveals what about God? His glory. You see that in the text? That is, look, they, they proclaim the beauty, the majesty, the magnificence, and the awesomeness of our great God. Look how glorious. The heavens scream, behold, the power, the brilliance, and the greatness of our creator. And what else do they scream? They scream this. They proclaim the work of his hands. In other words, exhibit A of God's power and divinity and almightiness is when you look at creation. We should stand in awe of the God who made them. Wow. How incredible. Paul puts it this way in Romans 1.20, explaining exactly it is what we get out of general revelation. This is important. Since the creation of the world, you know, way back in Genesis, which we examine, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what, he has, what has been made. Isn't that interesting? It's his invisible qualities, his divine nature. So Calvin puts it this way. Sometimes I read all the modern commentaries. I got to go back 500 years to find somebody who puts it right. And this is what Calvin says. The heavens themselves, although God should say nothing on the subject, proclaim loudly and distinctly enough that they have been fashioned by his hands. And this of itself abundantly suffices to bear testimony to men of his glory. As soon as we acknowledge God to be the supreme architect who has erected the beauteous fabric of the universe, our minds must necessarily be ravished with wonder at, the infinite, at his infinite goodness, wisdom, and power. I just love the way he puts that. Our minds have to be ravished by his infinite power and his goodness. So... You know, there's always been a debate whether or not creation actually reveals whether or not there's a creator. Well, it's answered right here if you believe in the word of God, because the word of God says, yes, it absolutely does. You don't have to worry about the debate. The Bible says, clearly, it does. So there was a title of one of Francis Schaeffer's books. I never read the book, sorry. But I love titles. You know, this is a great title. The title is, He is There and He is Not Silent. Isn't that a great title? He's there, and he's not silent. Verses 1 to 2 make that point really clear, but then verses 3 to 4 tell us who's given this message. How far has this message gone? In other words, is it only to a certain group of people, or does it extend to the entire world? Look at verses 3 and 4. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the end of the world. In other words, everybody hears it. That means 
folks from every ethnicity, because it says no speech, right? Every tongue, every religion, every people group, of every geographical location on planet Earth. And the supreme example he brings up, and how could you miss this one, is the sun. How it rises from one side, right, of the sky, and it goes over, and it sets on the other. One time when I was on the uh, Tyranian Sea, Tyranian coast, I saw this sunset that was so mesmerizing, and it kept getting more and more, because I kept trying to make my way to my car, because I needed to go. But as I make my way to the car, I'd take a look to my right, and I'd see it's more beautiful, so I go toward the shore again. Then I'm like, okay, I've had enough, and I go back to my car, and then it becomes more beautiful. So I literally stayed until it was almost dark. I think it was dark. But the point being is, that's the handiwork of our gracious God. And no sunset is exactly the same, right? It's like a fingerprint. Each day, God shows us. Or where we live, if any of us are crazy enough to get up early, which I'm usually not, you could walk over to the ocean here on a clear day and see some of the most glorious sunrises. The heavens declare so clearly, so persistently, and so universally God's might, God's glory, and the fact that he made all these things. And unlike the Egyptians who worship the sun, listen, worshipers of the one true God in heaven, of, of God of heaven and earth, worship its creator. Unlike those who go to the stars to try to figure out their future, we worship the one who gives guidance himself, who made the stars. We go to him for guidance. Now, if it's so clear, then why don't people acknowledge this fact and worship God accordingly? Why do people still argue with us that, you know, oh, we can't prove that there's a, a you know, intelligent design? Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It's for another sermon for another day. But I will mention this. You can mark it on your notes. Check out Romans 1. And Paul answers that question with a devastating, in a devastating fashion. It, Paul tells us this. Men suppress the truth by their wickedness. For those outside of a saving relationship of Jesus, our Redeemer, General revelation, this is important, general revelation is enough to condemn us, but it's not enough to save us. It's enough to show sin. Because it's interesting, Paul makes it clear, God has made himself known through what he has made. God himself. So I love, you know, sometimes we, we think we're these powerful uh, apologists and we're going to convince somebody. Listen, God himself convinces people and then they take that truth and they do what with it? They suppress it in their wickedness. And that's why I'm not saying not to be an apologist. We should, but we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to prove it to them because we really can't. But this, the focus of this psalm, that's why I'm not going to get as much into that, is the believer's response to general revelation. What's our response? Reverence and awe for the glorious God to whom the heavens point. But now the psalmist knows that the message that the heavens proclaim is severely limited. Think about this. The stars, the moon, the sun, the sky, they can't answer the big questions of life. 
You could yell back up at the sky and say, why am I here? You know you're going to hear? Cricket. Cricket. God who made me and everything else, what do you expect from me? Nothing. It's a silent witness. So we need to go to find out why God created us and everything else and what the purpose of life is. Notice what the psalmist does. He does what we have to do. He abruptly turns from the wonder of general revelation to the glories of special revelation. The instruction of the Lord, which is what translates the law of the Lord, by the way. It's Torah, which is instruction. God's written word in his holy scriptures. And in his case, particularly the Old Testament, but for us, we live after Christ's coming, both Old and New Testament. So let's take a look at the second thing we see in the text. God speaks not only through creation, but through his word. Now, before we look at the details of verses 7 to 11, I simply want to point out a huge implication that could be missed from the transition from God's general revelation in nature to God's revelation in his word. Now, this is going to be powerful. When it was pointed out to me, I had an aha moment here. David is clearly affirming, listen, this is powerful, that the God who displays his glory and his wonders for all to see in the shooting star, in the amazing sunset, in the northern lights, is none other than the God who has revealed himself in Holy Scripture. We know that. So when I see that sunset, that sunrise, I say, praise Jehovah. Praise the Lord Jesus. This is why believers can in one breath praise God for his amazing, amazing handiwork and creation. And the very next breath extol the treasures of the written word in the next breath. Because our God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is the one true God of all creation. The only true and living God. You know what we say? If there's one message of the Bible that we see is that God is love. Can I get an Amen. Well, there's another message in the Bible. He is the only God, and there is no other. You can't read Old or New Testaments and not see that. All the other gods of the nations, the psalmist say, are what? Idols. Man made up, made up stuff. As David continues his song, he goes from marveling at God's limited revelation of himself through what he's made to the detailed revelation of himself through what he has spoken. So now listen, brothers and sisters, I'm going to preach a minute here. It's a wonderful thing, and I'm here on purpose, to live in such a multicultural society that we live in. I delight myself in it. I love it. I literally love it. It's hard to go back to any monoculture. But it can also be a dangerous thing, spiritually speaking. We've got to be aware of that as well. While we must never be prejudicial or racist toward folks from other religious beliefs, we also must never give the false impression that we all worship the same God. It ain't true. And to compromise on that is to compromise our faith. It's one thing to say, listen, this is important. I, I wrote this out. I'm going to read what I wrote because I said it very carefully. Because once I go off the cuff, I get myself in trouble. But look, it's one thing to say this. I respect you as a fellow human being made in the image of God. No matter what you believe or don't believe, 
And as such, I will treat you with the same dignity, love, and goodwill I hope that you'll treat me with. Can I get an amen? But it's quite another thing than to say this. We all serve the same God. It doesn't matter which God, if any, you worship. We're talking commandment number one. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have what? No other gods before me. Fundamental to not only Old Testament religion, but also New Testament religion, is that there's only one true living God of heaven and earth, and he's the God, and the God who created everything is the one who speaks through Holy Scripture. And as David turns to those scriptures, instead of using the general name for God in Hebrew, as he did when he was dealing with God's general revelation, he uses the word El for God, which is just generic God Almighty. Now he switches, and six times he uses the personal name for God, the covenantal name, the name that God reveals only to his people, Yahweh, or Jehovah, or in the Greek uh, Septuagint, the Lord, all capital letters. It changes to the personal God. And we know him as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who said, I go back to my God and your God. My Father and your Father. That's who we're talking about. So using the Hebrew, Hebrew poetry which we kind of, that's why it's kind of hard to put this to music sometimes because English is not the same as the original Hebrew, which I would have loved to have heard that. I think that would have been really cool. But anyway, I digress. But as we uh, look at the, the, um, the Hebrew poetry here, we'll see that um, David says whose word it is six times of the Lord, the Lord. Then he mentions six nouns to describe the Lord's word and then six adjectives that describe what's, what the Lord's word does or accomplishes in his people. I just want you to see the structure because you'll see why it's important. So first of all, what is this word? Well, he calls it a number of things. He calls it the law, which is Torah, the instruction. He calls them the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and the ordinances of the Lord. In other words, the totality of God's written revelation, in his case, in the Old Testament, in our case, both. So he's not just talking about the law of Moses. I want you to see that. He's talking about the whole Old Testament. And for us now, the whole Bible. It's important to see that. And then he uses six adjectives to describe the word of the Lord. Listen, these are really neat. Perfect. Perfect. The word of the Lord is perfect. Trustworthy. That's a good one. Right. Radiant. Pure. And sure. I love that. And of course it says altogether righteous. Now imagine with me for a moment. Just use your imagination. If we had a source of absolute truth. That's never wrong. It can always fully be trusted. 100% of the time without fail. Imagine if we had a source of truth that's pure, that's unadulterated, and it's given by the same God who displays his glory in every sunrise, every sunset, every constellation, and every big fat red moon where we all go, ah. Well, my brothers and sisters, we do. We act like we don't sometimes. We act like we're so confused. And it shows the world is influencing the church more than the church is influencing the world when we're all messed up. When we're like, I don't know. 
what's right and wrong. But the thing is, is this is what David is affirming here, and it's so beautiful. We often talk about the desire to have something sure, an authority we can trust, a sure bet. And we know God's word is just that. In a world, this is important, in a world where people are struggling to find their moral footing, you with me? Solid ethical ground, clear spiritual direction, the word of God is our sure and altogether righteous guide. That should be hallelujah. But David doesn't stop there. He magnifies God's word not only because of what it is, not only because of whose word it is, but Lastly, we see in this connection, it, but he also talks about what it accomplishes for those who read it, meditate on it, and take it to heart. Notice, I'm going to show you what, mention what, it, what he says it does, the word. It revives the soul. Isn't that cool? You want your soul revived or restored? It makes wise the simple. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I'm pretty simple and I need wisdom. It gives joy to the heart. I need some joy in this, this dark world. I need real joy. Light to the eyes. It endures forever, and it's altogether righteous. Look, not one stroke of this pen is going to go away, Jesus says. Not one jot and tittle. Heaven and earth will disappear, but not my word. Now, look, I'm not going to go through them all, because we'd be here quite a time, but I just want to mention a couple to get you started so you can think about it. It revives the soul. Listen, money cannot revive your soul you know what money and possessions often does shrivel your soul that's what the bible says how hard it is for a rich man to what enter the kingdom of heaven popularity will not revive your soul the, the hottest thing today is forgotten tomorrow ask your rock and pop artists Pleasure isn't able to revive your inner being, but God's word can. As, as God's word says in Deuteronomy 8.3, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That's where we get nourishment for our souls. That's what makes us alive. Next one, makes wise the simple. Um, Old Testament theologian and commentator J.A. Motyer from England explains what it means to be simple according to the Old Testament. He says this, simple has the bad meaning of gullible and credulous. You ever meet gullible people? Believe anything? Lacking a guiding moral principle. And in its good meaning, it means teachable. Well, here's the neat thing. Where will the gullible and the naive find a cure for their gullibility? The word of the Lord. The word of the Lord will give that clear, sound direction for our moral, spiritual lives. And what about the humble person? What I love about this, the humble person is made wiser than Mr. Miyagi or Yoda. That's what I'm telling you. When you meditate on the word of God, when you apply it to your life, you actually could pick apart their philosophies. Say, that ain't biblical. As I mentioned, I'm not going to go through each of them. But what I do, I do want to show you here is what, how, God, how David refers to the word in verse 10. These principles from God's word. He says this about them. They are more precious than gold. 
You believe that this morning? Than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey. Than honey from the comb. Now, when I read that, I had to say to myself, is that how I value God's word? Including the Old Testament scriptures? Because don't forget, they testify to the righteousness that we have through faith in Messiah Jesus. The Old Testament does. Don't forget, Jesus himself said that all the law, the prophets, the writings testify to him. And don't forget, the Old Testament, listen, some of you need to hear this. The Old Testament is just as much the word of God as the red letters in the Gospels. Don't fall for that baloney. It's all the word of God. It has a proper place. In his commentary on Psalm 19, Roland Allen brings up an article he read about the sale of a rare Bible manuscript. I like this story. It was an illustrated copy of the book of Revelation. And after quoting the price that was paid for it, which was a tidy sum, the professor made this comment. Now listen, this is powerful. I wonder if either the buyer or the seller know that the words of that text are of inestimably more value than the beautiful art that has embellished the pages. You get that? I wonder if they recognize the words are more valuable. Sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. Now David mentions one reason among many why it's more precious than gold and sweeter than honey. Because notice what he says here. Because by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Now when I was young in the Lord, one of, one of the guys I listened to a lot was from 10th Prez. Believe it or not, right over, just an hour away from here. His, name's, his name was James Montgomery Boyce. He's now with Jesus. And um, I haven't really read much of his stuff in a long time. And I looked up his commentary on this particular psalm. And, and he has this beautiful way of putting this um, that I want to mention. He says this, the one who knows the law is warned by it. Warned against what? Listen, this is important. Against sin and its harmful effects and against the lies and errors of this world. We need such warnings because the world around us is clever and pervasive. Now listen, this is powerful. And there is nothing except the Bible to stand against his deceptions. Isn't that powerful? Nothing is to stand in the world's way other than God's holy, authoritative, life-giving word. And David acknowledges the great reward that is to be had, not by merely knowing them, but by putting them into practice. And that's the last thing I want to point out here. It's in light of these two revelations of God in nature and in his word that David now turns to his own inadequacy and his own sinfulness. You can't look at God's glory and nature in his word and not then recognize your unworthiness. We see it. So you always want people to wonder, what, what application am I going to give to this text? Well, here's the application. And it comes right from the text. We see that it reveals our need for a redeemer. Look at verse 12b and following. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. Now what's going on here? How does he go from what we just read about to this? 
Well, in light of God's awesome revelation of his eternal power, his divine nature through the heavens, and through his even more splendid revelation of his radiant, pure statutes, David turns his eyes to himself, and what does he see, lo and behold? He sees he's a sinful man among people of sinful tongue who need mercy and grace, the mercy and grace of a redeemer. Now look, so I'm going to point this out. Isn't this one of the great marks of someone who has truly been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit? Someone who's really been born again, you know they've been because they're sensitive to their sins. They confess their sins. They both seek forgiveness from God, like we see David does here, and also help from God to avoid them like the plague. You get that? A.W. Tozer once said this, an honest man with an open Bible and a patent pencil is sure to find out what is wrong with him very quickly. But David goes further than that. And he admits something that would be good for us to remember. Who can fully discern their errors? Isn't that crazy? You think about it? Jeremiah would later say this, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? So follow your heart. Go ahead. You know where it's going to lead you? Into a pit. Because your heart ain't right. Your heart is deceitful. King David, who walked with God, who knew God, who was born again, has to say here, forgive my what? Hidden faults. Who are they hidden to? From? They're not hidden from God, and guess what? They're often not hidden from your brothers and sisters. They see it. Who's it hidden from? Yourself, because you've deceived yourself. No, David asked God to forgive even the faults he can't see. Second thing David asks for here is God to keep him from willful or presumptuous sins. The NASB puts it that way. So David says, he prays that they won't rule over him so that he'd be innocent of great transgression. Now here's the question. What is the great transgression that's, that's spoken of here? It's in the Hebrew. And when we find, look at that Hebrew word, it's found in Exodus. And you may remember this particular scenario. It's when Moses goes up to get ten, the Ten Commandments. And what do God's people do? They say to Aaron, what? Make us a god so that we may worship him. It was the whole golden calf thing, and the Bible uses that word to explain the great transgression. In other words, the great transgression is idolatry. And more than that, ultimately, it's apostasy, which is to fall away from the one true God. And so David, David's big fear in his life is that he would commit that. You know, we're, we have a lot of fears, don't we? We're, a lot of, we're fearful people. But it, a healthy fear would be to fear that. Uh, some of you saw it on my timeline of Facebook, but I'm going to quote this in full. Um, Dick Lucas puts it this way, and it was very fortifying and purifying and helpful to me. So I want to pass on whatever's helpful to me, whatever I feed on, I want to give to you so you feed on it too. Listen to this. He says this. What is the great sin? It's apostasy. That's the great transgression. Going back to idol worship. 
Even, now listen, this is where he's going to meddle. Even turning your Christianity into something that is man-made, that pleases us and makes no demands. Hello? Welcome to modern Christianity. Do you not see from the psalmist's response how sensitive he is? Because though that's such a horrible thing, and we don't feel sitting here this morning that we'd ever be guilty of apostasy, what the psalmist is saying to you and to me this morning is it begins in very, very tiny ways. Who can discern his errors? These little things, these little tiny things that eat away at my life, and I hardly notice, and I don't feel they're worth confessing, these things will end in the great transgression. I believe that God keeps us partly through his warnings. It's right to trust God, but it's also right to distrust ourselves. Isn't that a good one? Backsliding, backsliding starts in very small ways. David recognized that. You know, it's also said that it's the little fox, foxes that spoil the vine. We dabble, we play, we think it's a gitchy gitchy goo until it turns over and bites us. And so, the last thing that I want to mention from the text is notice we're weak, we're failing, we fall, we sin. But if you're a true child of the living God through faith in Jesus Christ, your deepest desire, even though it's caked up with some junk sometimes, is that your life would be pleasing to him. Isn't that what it is if you're a believer here this morning? Don't you want your father's smile? Well, that's why David says this. Verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, notice it's both inside and outside, be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. As I come to a close, I'd be derelict in my duty as a minister of the gospel if I don't mention this. David was an Old Testament believer. That's right. People in the Old Testament could get saved. And how did they get saved? By looking ahead to who? The G Jesus, the Messiah, who was to come. The sacrifice. And notice that David had this intimate relationship with him by grace, through faith, because notice who God is to him. Is he this distant creator that he barely knows? No, he has two uh, names for God here. He calls him what? His rock and his redeemer. You know, sometimes in life you may have certain people you say, you know, I don't know where I'd be without you. You're my rock through all the years. You ever hear that? Well, I'll tell you one thing for sure. God is that rock. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Tomorrow and forever. He could be counted on fully. But then notice the other one he calls him, the other name he calls him, and that's so important, his redeemer. And he puts it this way in Psalm 103. You redeem my life from the pit. You forgive all my sins. And what's the response to this fact? The same that ours should be, given the fact that we have an even greater, deeper, brighter revelation than David had. We sh this should be our prayer this morning. O oh Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. 
O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, that's our prayer. Our prayer is that the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts would be something that bring you joy and pleasure. And we confess like David did. And Lord, we have hidden sins we don't even know about. And we know as well, Lord, that if we were to continue to give in to those sins and not confess them, Lord, they could lead to great transgression that would rule over us and that would make us very guilty before you. So, oh Lord, we pray that you would not allow those sins to dominate. God, we acknowledge we are powerless in and of ourselves to fight such things. And we thank you that in Jesus, in you, we have the victory. Oh Lord, be with us to this end and help us to keep short accounts with you to confess sin when you point it out. We ask it in Jesus' name, our rock and our redeemer. Amen.